and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated, to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have been for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. My name is Glenn Hoberg. I serve as one of the pastors here and want to welcome you, especially if it's your first time or you've just been coming for a couple weeks. You've been coming for 20 years. We're glad that you're here. And maybe as you heard that passage read, you you thought, wait a second, it's not nearing the fiscal year's end. Why are we getting a sermon on uh, giving? And let me say this, because it's in the Bible, and we're studying the letter of Corinthians, and we try to be faithful to the chapters as they unfold before us, but, you know, I I want you to feel some ease because I feel like I deliver this message to a generous congregation. And uh, it reminds me of the chapter prior to this one where Paul says, as you excel in all the gifts, excel in giving. And so uh, that's the spirit in which we bring it, or rather, I bring it. Uh, The second thing I want to say is, not one passage in the Bible says everything about every question about giving and money, right? So I was preaching at Meridian Hill this morning, and because they didn't have air conditioning, it was a shorter sermon. Uh, (laughs) I could tell they were dropping hints early on. As soon as I showed up, they were like, whew, it's hot in there. We're trying to make sure we consolidate the service, and I was like, I gotcha. But as far as I can tell, you all feel cool, and so (laughs) this could go on for a long time. No, it won't. But one of the questions I got was um, afterwards someone came up to me and said, listen, what do you do, though, when someone is taking advantage of your generosity? And I was like, 
No, that's, that's an important question too. It's not one that's on the, the mind of Paul in this particular place, but there are places in the Bible that talk about this. It really comes under this idea of what does it mean to be a faithful steward, right? But for our purpose, the, the question before us, and it's, it's, it's a little different than just you ought to be more generous. Or My question that I want us to get at is, um, what is God meaning to show us about himself through generosity? What is he meaning to show us about himself? That's a little different than just, come on, we got to be generous. Uh, so, every year, we are provided the rankings of the richest people in the world. Uh, you know, obviously, we want to know about these people. And many times, you see the same people uh, showing up each time. But along with that, you also get rankings of philanthropy. Who gives the most? In fact, it might even say this is how much they make and this is the percentage of what they give away. Now, why do people want to see that? Because we, we understand generosity to be a noble and beautiful thing. In fact, the original Latin word has this idea. Originally, the phrase meant of noble birth, generosity. And then it evolved into having a noble spirit. And then it involved into being noble with your finances. So it's very much this idea about the character of people. That's, that's what attracts us. And I would say it's part of what Paul is talking about here. But there's also, I think, misinformation and some challenges we get if we only go with the worldly concept of generosity. For instance, it would appear from the rankings I just mentioned, that it's the case that the richest people are the most generous people. And maybe you've thought before, you know, if I just had more wealth, I would be more generous. But Jesus in the gospel actually flips that, and he lifts up the most generous person in all the gospels is a widow living in poverty. And so it's not the idea that those that have the most are the most generous. The poorest person in this church could be the most generous person in this church. The second thing is uh, this hesitation we feel. Maybe you've had the experience before where, uh, and maybe, maybe it's time, where you promise uh, to give your time to someone. They say, hey, listen, I, could you help me on Saturday? Or they're asking you, you know, the worst question, right, is when someone just says, what are you doing on Saturday? And your mind's like, I want to know why you want to know what I'm doing on Saturday, right? And your mind is hoping, like, let me pull this thing out here. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm busy. Now, the fact is it's actually uh, the calendar from three years ago, right? But still... <laughs> But there's this hesitation for us to give, and it comes financially too, you know, generosity. And this was where the Corinthians were, the first part of that passage, which seemed a little bit like, what are they talking about? It was basically the Corinthians had promised to give a gift to needy believers in Jerusalem, and they were backtracking on it. They were hesitating on it. And Paul is saying, you know, I really want you to prepare this thing ahead of time so when we show up, 
it's not going to be an awkward circumstance here, but really what he's trying to do them is to act on their faith and not to be hesitant on their faith. So the world, again, would give us good reasons of how you kind of motivate yourself with generosity. In fact, there's all these wonderful studies that say generosity will uh, reduce stress. It gives you a sense of purpose. It, it'll help you fight depression, even help you to live longer. But the Bible, again, is sort of pushing us deeper, saying, actually, the kind of giving God is after isn't just self-benefit. The giving he's after is, do you know me? Do you know me and do you know what I have done for you? It's knowledge of who he is. So I want to talk about two things. First of all, what generosity comprehends, what it understands, what it gets, and then what generosity creates, what it comprehends and what it creates. So yearly I meet with a group of pastors I've known for a long, long time. And one of them happens to be uh, the head of the agency in the PCA of retirements and benefits. And so one of the early retreats, he said, listen, because I love you and I care about you, I got all your financial information on my computer. And I want to meet with each of you, you know, whether it's 20 or 30 minutes, and I'm going to sit down with you, and you're going to come away understanding where you stand about your financial future. And there he had it, you know, all these numbers that I was really struggling to understand. You know, there were columns, then he showed it in graphs, pointers, you know, all these ways. Why was he doing it? Because he was saying, I want you to comprehend, I want you to comprehend where you are. God wants you in a, to comprehend, comprehend where we are even in our understanding of the gospel. Now, that may sound a little bit like, whoa, what are you talking about? Now, if I asked you, what are signs that you understand the gospel, the understanding of the grace of God? I think many of us would say, well, it's evidenced by someone who prays. It's evidenced by someone who worships. It's evidenced by someone who serves in obedient. But would it be evident with your bank statement? Would we go as far to say generosity is actually evidence of my understanding of the Christian gospel and who God is? Paul is pressing on that a little bit. First, he's trying to say, do you comprehend that God is a true and real provider? A true and real provider. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Now, at first, it's really important we notice what this is not saying. Uh, because I would say uh, a common thought that circulates not just in what we might call the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth churches, but I would say in the general church, a common idea is if I take the risk and give more, God will increase my standard of living. 
So if I give more because I can't outgive God, he's going to give me more. And the implication is that I will become wealthier and increase my standard of living. Now, as far as I know, when the widow gave at the temple, she didn't get, go home and find a pot of gold. It's very likely her standard of living didn't change at all. And so we have to look at the text and see, it doesn't say he who supplies seed to the sower will increase your bank account. It says he who supplies seed for the sower will increase a harvest of righteousness. And it doesn't say God is able to make all cash abound, but all grace abound, and that you will be enriched to enrich others. So, how is it that we kind of read that but interpret the other thing? Well, some of it may be the poor teaching we get from pastors like me. But also, I think deep and down, we believe we need money more than mercy. You know, we believe we need, uh, we need a standard of living increase more than we need grace. So I was thinking about this. Um, an angel shows up on your doorstep. And this, I know, is kind of a wacky scenario. So afterward, don't say, Glenn, your view of angels is really, you need to go back to seminary, okay? But the angel shows up and says, listen, you know, God has looked upon you favorably and he wants to give you something, but here's the choice. You can increase in grace or increase in your standard of living. Hmm. I mean, I can imagine myself reasoning, well, I, I, I mean, I already have grace. I, I, I mean, he's given me grace, and yeah, I know I'm forgiven, and I know, you know, he loves me, and I, I know that I'm his adopted, so I, I kind of know that stuff. But really, what would help is, see, we probably don't really believe we need to increase in grace. Increase in our knowledge of grace and our knowledge of mercy. Is that the treasure? Isn't this where Jesus goes when he teaches about earthly rewards and he says, right, where, you, where your treasure is, your heart will be also, right? Sort of getting at this idea of what do you really believe would be the treasure in your life? I mean, we live in the real world, right? This, these, are not, these are hard things. They're tempting things. We all have treasures. I was walking with a friend of mine the other day, and um, we were talking about the things that people uh, really begin to sort of like treasure hunt for, the things that they really value and seek. And, and he said, you know, uh, when I got married, he said, I'm not a huge watch person, but my wife gave me this really nice watch as a wedding gift, and so I wear it. And he said, as I have, I've noticed there's a whole cult of watch connoisseurs. He said, like, strangers that don't even know me will come up to me and go, excuse me, is that a so-and-so? And he said, they'll talk to me for 10 or 15 minutes. You can tell, like, as they're walking through their day, the treasure and value that they, they've got their radar on their eyes are is watch, right? They're probably late to things, right? But we all have that. I, 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 saw, uh, I saw a shirt the other day that said, sorry, I'm late, I ran into a puppy, Right? I mean, there's lot, all of us have these things that we're like, that's the thing that we're tempted on. So we have to get to the question of the heart, right? We have to get to the question of the heart. And Paul, of course, brings this up when he's pushing on the Corinthians about 
a reluctant heart or a cheerless heart, right? I mean, if giving to God feels like... Paying your taxes ought to feel different than paying your tithe. Paying your taxes ought to feel different than generosity in the kingdom. If it doesn't, we're missing something, right? And so he's getting at the heart and the generosity. So where does he go? He goes to this idea of God's heart and what he gives and what he has given to us, right? The chapter before, he says, For you know the grace demonstrated by our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, eternal Son of God, glory, the one of whom the angels would say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor. Do you know that that one, though he was rich, he became poor for your sake so that by his poverty you might become rich. There it is. That's the gospel thing that God is trying to get into our hearts as we think about generosity. He's trying to to move upon our spirits in this way. The gospel is this understanding that I've really come to believe that the wealthiest being who has ever lived gave up everything for me. Everything. Not 45%, not 68%, but 100%. He underwent a total loss. He took on my bankruptcy upon himself, freely. He distributed freely to someone who was poor, naked, and miserable and blind. It really happened. That's why Jesus came. That's why he came, to give himself for you. And so it helps us move out of what Paul is. There's a Greek concept he's, he's alluding to with the Corinthians where he's talking about How do we move out of being tight-fisted and hard-hearted? You know, the only thing that's going to do that is understanding not that gospel. And maybe it's not money you're tight-fisted and hard-hearted with. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's forgiveness. Maybe it's gratitude. It's the treasure of the sun. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became as poor. You and I, through our giving, what is God after? You know what he's after. <laughs> it's such a strange thing that it, because it, we're just not used to someone whose entire mission in our, in our lives would be that we would know how much he loves us and how valued we are. That's just, we don't find that. And when Jesus counsels, if you go to the Gospel of Luke, where he talks about, don't be anxious about what you wear, right, and your bodies and all the things, what does he say? Don't you know how valued you are? Don't you know how, if you could see yourself through the eyes of God in Christ and what I've come to do? Let us comprehend that. And when we do, it begins to, we begin to create wealth. We begin to actually create spiritual wealth. We become, we, we, we become one of those billionaire philanthropists in the kingdom of God. 
someone that actually knows how to generate riches among God's people. What do we mean by that? First of all, the wealth of meeting real needs of people. Paul mentions this as he talks about meeting the needs of the church. The longer I live, and, you know, as I think about, like, the way my desires have changed, you know, there's sort of this phase where uh, your desires move from wanting to build a resume uh, and wanting to impress with performance to a point where you largely want to be useful, like you want to be helpful, right? All of us have experienced that. We struggle back and forth, but this idea that I actually was helpful to this person. They needed what I brought to them. What a feeling of satisfaction, a feeling of dignity. We live in a sin-ridden world where people have real needs. You know, we think about the Old Testament and its constant stress upon the quartet of the vulnerable, the stranger, the poor, the orphan, the widow. People within the covenant community, and it's the same too. And I would say to a church, you know, sometimes I think churches need to ask themselves the question, why are there not people like that in my community? All right? What's, what's wrong with the preaching of the gospel where folks aren't feeling welcomed by that? But that's not the only need, right? People's need of encouragement, people's need because of trauma and wounds. We, to be used of God to meet a need. And this is where Paul quotes Psalm 112. This is a great psalm. Let me read a portion of it to you. He said, It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. How do you get remembered forever? How are you trying to be remembered in the city, right? How are we trying to do that? He is not afraid of bad news. He does not dread bad news. Any dreaders of bad news here? Yeah, for me, like, every day, right? When's the other shoe going to drop? This has been a great day. What's going to go wrong tomorrow, right? He is not afraid of bad news, because all of this has to do with generosity, right? His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it, and he's angry. Let's make some wicked people angry, right? Because they look at that generosity in a time, and they find ways to disdain it, and they find ways to go, yeah, but you're this and that. But the righteous man is not moved. Right? This is the gospel woman, the gospel man we're talking about here. Because that's the thing that really makes you go every day, no matter what's happening out there, if what's happening in here is comprehension of who this God is and his love for me, and it's strengthened by my brothers and sisters, I, we, can handle what's out there. So, meeting real needs. But the last thing here... Um, Creating ministry. 
Now, this is, this is interesting. Paul is actually using, um, because this, this offering is part of this idea of worship. And so he's saying, and worship is supernatural. Only God, only God can create supernatural joy and thanksgiving and gladness and freedom. Only God can do those things. And he's actually saying through your generosity, God will produce those things in the lives of the people you know. Man, have you ever thought, I, I wish I could jump into this person's soul and just like sort of tell them they're loved or hope that they're... Here's what he says. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. They actually become thankful by their approval. They see what you're doing, and they, they glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel. That is, when I see someone, when I see someone who so trusts in the love of God, that um, they're free in their generosity. It makes me hungry and thirsty to be like him. I mean, it makes me, it makes me thankful. It makes me joyful, right? God does this through our generosity. It's not just meeting tangible needs. What I'm saying is he creates spiritual wealth in the hearts of somebody. You're not just taking care of an electric bill or rent, or some housing. You're doing far more than that. You're creating wealth of soul. Hallelujah. What a blessing. So, to close out, um, I know it's far from Christmas, um, but I was thinking about that movie that they spin forever and ever around Christmas time, It's a Wonderful Life. Some of you have probably seen that movie. It's an, it's an oldie, right? And in some ways, it's hard not to see it, right? Because it's just always on. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's got cheesy stuff, and it's got stuff. You know, I, I always struggle watching older movies because of the cultural moment it's in, longing to see more color and race. But anyway, I'll move on. So... Um, in this film, there's really something so beautiful about it. So George Bailey, and if you know this right, again, this is me and my spoiler thing. This film is 80 years old. <laughs> so I don't want to hear anything about it if you decide to watch it, and he ruined it. It's 80 years old, okay? So anyway, George Bailey is in this town, and his dad owns a savings and loan, and basically, G George loves this town. Great theology of place stuff. Like he's committed to his place, and these people are under the thumb of old man Potter, who wants to squeeze it and just develop it uh, and do what he wants with it. He's just a hard-hearted guy, and even if it costs uh, he and his business, he's just constantly trying to invest and help people out and give them loans when he probably shouldn't give them loans and just all this stuff, right? But you know something? And when he does it, his life goes great. No. It goes so bad that he wants to jump off a bridge, and he does. So, right? Standard of living and this idea, if I give, everything goes better. If I sacrifice like that, everything... No! It doesn't go that way. I was listening to a sermon yesterday 
And uh, the preacher said, you know, when, when uh, hard times for Christians go on for a long time, it's essentially God saying, now, this is where I'm going to see if you're in this thing for me or for yourself. If you're in this because of my love or just for me to serve you. So anyway, you know, things aren't working out for George. He pops off the bridge and an angel saves him. This is where the theology is really daft. But anyway, he saves the angel, I think. He saves the angel. All right. Saves the angel. And anyway, after a series of things, he basically uh, comes back to sanity in life. He'd been awful to his wife and his kids. And, you know, he comes in and it's like their leaky roof in their home. And he, you know, hugs her and there's this great moment. But that's not the climax. Right, the climax is, you know, the door opens up, and all these people in the town go, George, we didn't know, we heard you were having hard times. And they just start to pull you know, their coins and their money and just throwing them in there. Just all the town coming back to just sort of pay up, you know, pay up their love and their gratitude for him in the form of generosity. You know, that's not too far from what we're talking about here, right? And in the end, do you think it was the fact that George could get out of his hole? No. It was all those people, right? All those people going, you know, this is the payoff for generosity. This is what God means to do for us. The church are those people busting into people's doors and busting into cities and going, out of joy, here we are. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we'll never comprehend, even when we're in heaven, we'll spend eternity comprehending the depths of your giving, of your beloved Son, and you, O oh Jesus, your willingness to give yourself and the Spirit to release you we're so thankful for this gospel that changes everything. I thank you for this generous congregation. I thank you for the love of the gospel in this room. And Lord, we, we long to be famous for that sort of giving, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.